The Biden administration blinks on the debt crisis. New and used car prices skyrocket. After a two-day marathon, the House passes the heartbeat bill in South Carolina. Now what will the Senate do? And an entire IRS investigative team gets reassigned by the Justice Department. All this and more today on Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Okay, okay, we're a little a little bit late getting started this morning, and uh, the reason is I was having some, uh, shall we say, technical difficulties. While uh, my, for some reason, my headphones went dead in the place where they're usually plugged in. So, I, fortunately, I found a couple of places that I could plug them in in this board. See, that's that's why you get a good board, like a Rodecaster, um, because if if you're if you have a fail at one point at the board. Um, you've got like four ports you can plug in headphones, so you can just keep plugging them in until you find one of them that works. And, of course, it'd be better if the board wasn't failing at some point, but at least it's got a fail-safe or a backup. So anyway, good morning. Sorry uh, to be a few minutes late if you're normally jumping in right at 730. Um, but this occurred, I had no idea it was working earlier this morning, and then there you go. That's what happens when you don't have a producer and this is just one of the many reasons that I miss my good friend Gary Miller, um, who for 22 years just made it easy for me to walk into the studio and uh, sit down and do the show, think about the content. I didn't have to think about all the stuff that I have to think about here. Um, I, I tell you, I, I really, <laughs> it's kind of impossible to underestimate the value of having somebody do that for you. All right, yesterday, the South Carolina House of Representatives, actually last night, just a few hours ago, um, around uh, 9 o'clock, I guess, last night. Now, timing might be a little bit off because I was doing other things and was kind of distracted as the text messages started coming in. But the House did, last night, pass the heartbeat bill that passed from the Senate last uh, earlier this year. It has a few modifications, but what we're, what we're hearing is that those modifications have already been pretty much pre-vetted by the Senate. So it's the, the Senate says Senator Massey, who is the Senate Majority Leader, he's the one who knows how his caucus is going to vote over there. He says that he has the votes. He says he has a, a enough plenty of votes to pass the heartbeat bill when it comes back over. It'll have to be, it'll have to go back to the Senate because it's been slightly modified. If it was just the Senate version that the House voted on yesterday, it would already be on its way to the governor's desk. So uh, we need to pray that this bill will actually get back to um, the, the Senate. The Senate will, it will, and it will because it passed, and the Senate will take it up, pass it quickly, and Governor McMaster can sign it into law. And before his signature dries on the document, uh, Planned Parenthood will file a lawsuit to enjoin the heartbeat bill from going into effect. Hopefully we can expedite a case to the South Carolina Supreme Court and hopefully the newest justice on the South Carolina Supreme Court, Justice Gary Hill, 
will make the difference as he looks at this heartbeat bill as opposed to the one that the South Carolina Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional earlier this year. Um, I, and we don't know. I mean, we just, um, you know, we, we hope. We look at previous voting records of justices in South Carolina on the Pellet Division, which is where Justice Hill came from. Uh, we look at, we talk, and we hear his philosophy, and it sounds like someone who would be an originalist, uh, uh, somebody who would look at the Constitution for what it says and not read a progressive or a conservative agenda into it, but simply make decisions based on what the text of the Constitution says. That That's part of what it means to be a textualist as well. So um, we'll, we'll have to wait for the outcome of all that. Things got pretty interesting in the House yesterday. You know, um, Tuesday when I was there from, uh, gosh, I lost track of time, uh, from about 11 o'clock Tuesday morning until around 2 o'clock Wednesday morning, um, they, they, you know, House Speaker Merle Smith was feeling under the weather. He tried a couple of times to get to the House and was just not able. So Davey Hyatt, who's the majority leader, Representative Bruce Bannister, who's chairman of Ways and Means Committee, and um, Representative Weston Newton, who's the chairman of the judiciary over in the House, took turns presiding over the House um, on Tuesday during that marathon. They got about 145 of the 1,000 amendments that Democrats put up to try to stop the bill dealt with on Tuesday, between Tuesday and early Wednesday morning, and they dealt with the rest of them yesterday. They started at 10 o'clock in the morning, and they went until about 9 o'clock last night. They ruled um, many of the amendments from the Democrats as being dilatory, which simply means they, they didn't have any real purpose in advancing the legislation. In fact, the purpose of the amendment was to hold up the process of the House, and if, and if the chair um, rules that that's the purpose of that amendment, then it is dilatory and therefore can be ruled out of order. And that got rid of several hundred of the hundred of the amendments. They were able to get rid of a few hundred more by looking at the text of the amendments and determining that, determining that they were not germane to the meaning of the bill. In other words, they had really nothing to do with the bill. They were just uh, something to get a Democrat up there for three minutes to delay the process. So a number of the amendments were ruled out of order because of a lack of them being germane. Um, and then, you know, the, the House Republicans, uh, they deserve credit here because they just stood in the face of multiple attempts to adjourn, multiple attempts to recede, multiple attempts to back up the clock. I mean, do you realize the South Carolina House can time travel? I mean, that each House member has issued a DeLorean at the beginning of the session, and they can hop in there and actually time travel back to the beginning of the session for that day. Actually, they can't do that, but they can and, and, and invoke a rule that if the House votes, they can go back and start the day all over again at a particular time. So all of those things had to be dealt with, as well as all of the amendments. And so I, I have nothing but um, today but praise for the House leadership. Uh, Speaker Merle Smith, this was something that he was determined to get done. Um, Majority Leader Davey Hyatt uh, and all of the leadership over there. I've just named some of the others. Bruce Bannister over Ways and Means and Weston Newton over Judiciary. Um, they were able to hold the line, keep all the Republicans together, and let the Democrats have their say, which in a constitutional republic, the minority party gets to have their say. They get to offer their amendments. They get to take 
the dais, the podium, and actually, um, you know, talk about why they're opposed to a bill. That, that That's what makes our state government, our federal government, our local government work. It's the difference between a pure democracy and a constitutional republic. In a pure democracy, the minority, the people who don't have power, basically don't have a voice. But in a constitutional republic, the rights of the minority to present their side of the case, uh, the rules that, that, are, that govern the House and the Senate are essentially, um, they're, they're good rules that protect the opportunity of the minority to try to slow down reg- legislation reasonably and to have an extended debate to try to change people's minds. So, um, okay, I'm, just, I'm getting word here that we're not on Facebook this morning for some reason. And I have no idea why. Um, I'm sorry about that for those who are uh, accustomed to seeing the program on Facebook Live. You can go to YouTube if you're you're watching. You can look for Truth and, and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and you can see the program live on YouTube this morning. I hope that's still up there. It says that we're streaming, so we should be. Um, okay, so... Um, let me talk a little bit about this bill in terms of what I would have liked to have seen happen. I sent out a text last night to Representative John McCravey in the House. He's the chairman of the uh, Family Caucus, leader of the Family Caucus. And I I just said I commiserated with him a little bit in that this is not the bill that I wanted to pass. I wanted the Human Life Protection Act to pass, which Representative McCravey had championed in the House, passed the House, I think, with an 83, um, with 83 votes, and, um, and then went over to the Senate to die because of a Senate filibuster. We got enough votes to pass the bill, but we couldn't get enough votes in the Senate to get past the filibuster. That would have protected life beginning with a, cl- a clinically diagnosable pregnancy, which occurs at about two weeks, and it had far fewer restrictions in that bill than there are in the heartbeat bill. The heartbeat bill has exceptions for rape and incest. It has exceptions for life of the mother. It has exceptions for fatal fetal anomaly. Um, it uh, up to I think twelve weeks in the pregnancy. It has a section which will allow a minor, if they choose to go to court, can go to court and if they can get a judge to give them permission, they can have an abortion up to twelve weeks. Now that that'll be in you know have to be litigated in the court system, um, and the parents will have to be involved. So that's you know those are things that I wouldn't want. Those are things that I didn't want to to see in the bill. I wanted a straight up bill that would protect life beginning when a heartbeat was detected, um, or or more. I mean, like I said, I would have been much more comfortable with the Human Life Protection Act. But we have to realize that we live in a climate, a, po- a certain political climate, where things are possible. And if you can't get something, if, if something becomes impossible, then you can end up with nothing or you can step back and get the protections that are possible. And that's what we did in this case. And, I, and I'm just a guy who believes that that's, in, in the world we live in, that that's reasonable. Now, do we just say, well, that's, that's the best we can do, can't do anything else, so we're just going to have to live with it? No. We begin to instigate or initiate climate change. And I mean climate change in a good way. I'm talking about changing the climate in the Senate. I'm talking about finding people who are 
committed to conservative principles as something that's part of their core value system, get them to run and vote them into office and vote some of these people out who are conservative when it comes to going to the voters and then something else when it comes to going to work in the Senate. And there are some House members that are in that category. But I'm telling you, I'm not... I'm, I'm very happy with the South Carolina House right now because um, they put up with some of the most ridiculous rhetoric for hours and hours that I've ever heard in my life. I mean, you had people going to the podium, going to the well of the house, and saying things like, uh, a woman who can't have an abortion after six weeks is not free. They're, they're chained. They're in some kind of bondage. They put up with people going to the well and saying that, that a life really doesn't have any value, that, that a baby doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's just incredible stuff. And then plus, you have people whining and complaining from the Democrat side and the House over the last uh, 48 hours about how much this is costing because we're having to be back in Columbia and we're having to extend the process and it's costing the taxpayers money when the easiest way to stop costing taxpayers money would have been simply to withdraw all the amendments. And if you withdraw all the amendments, it would have taken about all of 10 minutes to pass the heartbeat bill because they had the votes. And Republicans were not going to back up and say, oh, we're spending money. I mean, how much, how much is a life worth? How much is an unborn baby in the womb worth? I mean, that's, um, that, that's something that you know, <laughs> that, I, I, that I think it's a question that Democrats should be forced to answer when the question becomes uh, what it's costing to get the process done to protect life in the womb. South Carolina was having over 1,000 abortions a month. Hello? 1,000. And, I mean, we're talking uh, 12,000 at least a year, and it would have been more than that. It had been somewhere between twelve and 14,000, and Fourteen to 15,000 is the most we've ever had in a single year, and that was back in 1988. And we were headed in that direction. North Carolina just passed a 12-week ban. I mean, that's the best they could do. The political climate in North Carolina is such that 12 weeks is the best they could do. I'm thankful that we can do better here in South Carolina if we can get this six-week ban across the finish line over in the Senate because it will save lives. When the heartbeat bill was in effect back in 2021 for a week, I think it was 2021, before, um, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, while, while in the month of July, abortions dropped to a record low rate in South Carolina. Now, there were still too many because there was more than one. But again, politically speaking, we were protecting as much life as possible in the political climate that we have. We live in a society that has agreed to live under government rules and laws legitimately passed by our legislative bodies. And if we don't like what the legislative bodies do, then we've got to go to the ballot box and we've got to change the people who are in those seats. And that's the right process, process to go through. All right, uh, we're going to continue to report on this. I put up a, a report to the South Carolina Baptist Convention. If you're a pastor or leader in the convention or just a, a member in the convention, you can go to the S South Carolina Baptist Convention website, find the Office of Public Policy, and sign up to get the newsletter and or the action alerts and the legislative updates. And then if you do that, they'll come right 
to your email box and you can keep up because I put those out pretty regularly. All right, President Biden and House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy have been playing a pretty high-stakes game of chicken, just like what's been going on in the House here in South Carolina. But their high-stakes game is over money, but it's over a disastrous result should the United States default on its debt. Uh, so they're trying to raise the debt ceiling. The latest word coming from those familiar with the negotiations between McCarthy and Biden is that they're getting close to a deal. And that's a good thing because we don't need in the middle of some bad economic headwinds to have the possibility of those headwinds turn into a hurricane if we don't get a deal on the debt ceiling. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says we've only got a few weeks for um, until the United States government is going to have to shut down many of its operations and then just default on paying its debts. Uh, we, we've never done that. Um, we, we can't do that. China is attacking the dollar as the, the reserve currency of the world. If they were to be successful in replacing the dollar, uh, it would be disastrous. I mean, you, you think things are cost a lot now? You think inflation is out of control now? Just let the Chinese be successful at getting the U.S. dollar replaced as the reserve currency of the world and see what happens. When you've got $32 trillion in debt, the only thing you've got is the fact that everybody trades in the dollar. And so and there are people wanting to lend us money and uh, people that want to uh, you know, make sure the United States economy doesn't totally collapse because it would take their economies down with it. So for months now, Biden has said, and Schumer, and all the Democrats have been singing off the same songbook. They, they say, well, we're not going to negotiate. We're not no, don't come to us with an idea about how to save money by raising the debt ceiling. We just want a blank check. We like to spend money. We like to raise the national debt, and we don't care about making any inroads into saving Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid. We, we don't want to make any inroads into keeping the, the national debt from getting to $40 trillion, which is where we're headed. And so don't bring us any kind of negotiation stance. Just shut up, sit down, and write the checks. That's basically what the Biden administration is saying to Republicans. But Kevin McCarthy, and I know a lot of you listening to this program do not like him, uh, but I'm telling you, uh, he did a very smart thing here because he was able to pass a debt ceiling deal in the House that's reasonable that it makes it impossible for the Biden administration, if we were to default, to blame all of that on Republicans because, you know, Biden could just, he can say whatever he wants to say. The left doesn't have a problem coming up with a narrative and they don't have any particular allegiance to the truth when it comes to the narrative that they want to put out there. But it's really hard for them to do that when the House has passed a reasonable bill that would raise the debt ceiling. Um, for months, Biden, you know, again, not going to, not going to negotiate, but Unfortunately, in Washington, and I, this is unfortunate, on both sides of the aisle, public policy is often established by whether or not one side can blame the other for an outcome. I mean, you know, there's all this idea of, well, the Democrats are not going to make a deal unless they can save face. I, I, you know, why, why do we care whether they can save face or not? They, they've been, uh, you know, obstructing any possibility of a reasonable answer to raising the debt ceiling. But yet that's, that's exactly 
what does matter when it comes to whether we get legislation crossed uh, across the desk. Doesn't matter how big the problem is. Doesn't matter who or how many people are getting hurt. The prevailing question is, if we pass a piece of legislation, if we have a problem in this country, who can be legitimately blamed for any negative effects and what will, what will it do to hurt them and to help me politically? What can I do to exploit the negative parts so that politically I get a win? Any sense of altruism, any sense of self-sacrifice, the good of the country has long since been a non-factor when you think about negotiating. And that's bad for the country. Uh, it's bad when conservatives resort to those kind of tactics. It's bad when progressives resort to those tactics. And to me, it's worse when progressives resort, resort to them because they work. People are worried about appearances. And when progressives get what they want by being able to blame Republicans, then it means they're getting something that's destructive for the country. Progressive policies don't work. Look at any major American city run by, the Dem by, by Democrats. Look at any state that's run by Democrats. California, $32 billion, between 32 and 38, depending on who you talk to, billion dollars. But, but then again, what's a few billion dollars between friends? But it's between 32 and 38 billion, with a B, dollars in debt. That's how much they're spending over their budget. 40 million people. And yet Gavin Newsom's running around trying to explain why reparations is a good idea that would add another $500 billion to the California uh, requirements of, of being able to pay its bills. And it, it, it makes absolutely no sense. You, put, you put, put Democrat leaders in charge of something, and they will destroy it financially, socially, in every way. Go to Chicago. You know what the new mayor of Chicago wants to do? And I know I'm getting off track here a little bit, but this is important. New mayor of Chicago. What does he want to do? He wants to further defund the police in Chicago. Now, you're talking about a murder rate that's off the chart. You're talking about every weekend. It looks like a, a weekend back in the days when, um, you know, the you were in Iraq and Baghdad or in some kind of foreign war situation. Well, that's just a typical weekend in Chicago now. And yet the new mayor wants to come in and further defund uh, the police. And what's he going to do with the extra money? They've got all these climate programs, all these social programs it's basically a progressive smorgasbord of things that they want to do. They want to tax businesses to death. And I'm not talking about big business. I'm talking about mom and pop businesses that are left in Chicago. They want to tax them out of existence and then tax the wealthy to the point that they'll just move. I mean, this is, this is the kind of insanity that I'm talking about. When you get progressives behind a policy... Nine times out of ten, that policy is going to devastate whatever area that they're leading. It's devastating Chicago. It's devastating Philadelphia. It's devastating Los Angeles. It's devastating everywhere that it's implemented. But it, it doesn't matter. Uh, print more money, spend more money, get more social programs, get more votes in these progressive areas. I mean, and, and this is the thing. 
I, people rail about this and they talk about, well, how Chicago shouldn't be able to do this. I don't care what Chicago does. I mean, I, quite frankly, if they want to go out of existence, if they want to ha see the total collapse of order and any type of social cohesion in, in Chicago, then that's up to the voters. They just voted out Lori Lightfoot, who was as about as far left as you could get, and they voted in another mayor who's in the same place philosophically that Lori Lightfoot was. It, it makes no sense. People are upset. Crime is up. Um, cost of living is up. Social fabric being frayed to the breaking point. So let's get rid of the person that caused that and bring in a new person who's got the same idea about how to fix it. That makes absolutely no sense. All right, back to the debt ceiling. Sorry, had to chase and catch and shoot that rabbit for a second. Um, so progressives, interestingly enough, are hopping mad at the Biden administration. In fact, uh, Representative Jamal Bowman is concerned because the president moves to the right every now and then in order to appease voters who are an independent. That, that's what he said about about Biden. It's also said, been said to Biden, look, uh, you're not the guy that the 19, we don't want the 1986 version of Joe Biden that was moderate. We want the, the, the version of Joe Biden that we have constructed, that we have manufactured, that we have propped up and continue to prop up. We want that Joe Biden to never negotiate, but always swing for the fences with progressive ideas. Um, these all-or-nothing proposals, they often yield the latter of those two things. You end up with nothing. So Biden's getting heat um, about riders over from riders over at the Uber Progressive Atlantic who are using the word cave and stories about Biden more often than they use when they're talking about where brown bears live. I mean, this, the Biden administration caves. They caved. They're really coming after this guy because he's even talking to Kevin McCarthy. This is the arrogance of progressive thinking, ladies and gentlemen. You, you know, how dare he condescend to talk to the rube Republicans who should be dis discounted? I mean, we're in power. Use it. Go out and give us exactly what we want, or we'll go find somebody that's to the left of you, and we'll get behind them to be president. And as far as I'm concerned, knock yourself out. Because if they divide the uh, Democrat Party over the fact that they think Biden's not progressive enough, uh, they will not win the White House in 2024. They will not. Because they will not get any independent voters. And there's not enough progressives, thank God there are not enough progressives, to elect a president without help from independents. And, 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 and what's left of the moderate Democrat Party, which there's really nothing structurally left of moderate Democrats, there are some moderate Democrats in the party, but their voices are being drowned out by the progressives. But just like conservatives cannot get elected president with far-right policies, uh, Democrats who are progressive can't get elected with far-left policies. You've got to be able to appeal to suburban women, to independent voters, to people that are in the middle of the road. Because if you don't, and look, I don't, I don't like that. You know, I don't. I, people walking down the middle of the road are the people that get run over. That, that's why moderates don't have much appeal to me. Give me some passion. Give me core values that you're willing to defend, no matter what. 
And they're just, when you start talking to moderates about core values, you get, well, I kind of believe that, you know, life maybe could be, should be, maybe should be protected in the womb, but I don't know. I want to find somebody who is willing to protect life. Uh, you know, you probably shouldn't have an abortion unless you're, you know, 30 weeks into a pregnancy. Come on. I mean, that, that's the kind of stuff that, that drives me crazy. Like the other day, we're driving around in Columbia on Tuesday, went out to get some dinner while the house was continuing. And as we were coming back, there was a guy walking down the middle of Elm Street in Columbia. Now, if you, if those of you who don't know, that's the, that comes off of the interstate and goes to Assembly, it goes to Bull Street, it goes to the major arteries downtown. And this guy, he's not on the sidewalk, he's not walking across a crosswalk, He's walking down the middle of the road. Moderates live in the middle of the political road. And I, I don't, you know, that drives me crazy. But you have to have them in an election because you can't win unless they go, enough of them show up and vote because there's not enough Republicans, not enough Democrats to win an election straight out. Some of the things that are in this compromise bill that would raise the debt ceiling, work requirements for welfare recipients, that's one of the contentious negotiating points. Demo I'm telling you, Democrats are incensed that the government would require someone to look for a job or be retrained for a job while they're getting welfare. They believe welfare is an open-ended entitlement. You should just be able to go to the government. You, you've been hearing all these cases. Some states have passed... Um, a law that says that the that their citizens are going to make ten, twelve thousand dollars a year, and if they don't make that, then the government's just going to hand them the money to make up the difference. So, <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of of fiscal disaster policy that puts states like California into the kind of debt they're in, and is doing the same thing in New York. But the people who have the megaphone right now and the money. That's, that's the far left. They control the legacy media. They control corporate America. They control the financial systems and institutions. So why should they give anything to conservatives? See, this is the way they approach. They say, look, we, we control all these things in the culture. We're going to talk about a little bit later in the program today, four companies that have gone 100% woke, more than Miller, uh, Bud Light, rather, and they're beginning to feel the financial effects of what it means when they just throw in willy-nilly with far-left policies like supporting transgender surgery on minors and different policies like that. Um, the, you know, the, the Biden administration right now, they stink in the polls when it comes to independence. And you know he knows that if he wants to have any shot at winning four more years that, he'll, that he won't even remember. He won't even know that he's there. There'll just be people who are pointing to a point for him to go stand and then make sure he gets there, and people who hand him cards to know what to say to a reporter during an interview, uh, people who try to make sure that he doesn't wander around on the platform after he gives a few statements and refuses to answer, answer questions. I mean, can you imagine if that's where he is now, where will he be four years from now or three years from now when he's in his mid-80s. Um, in fact, Democrats have a real problem with people who have impaired cognitive ability being in office. Think Dianne Feinstein. 
Think President Biden. Think Fetterman from Pennsylvania. And we're going to look at all three of those here and a little bit later if we have time. If we don't, we'll talk about them tomorrow. But considering all this control that we talked about from the progressives, where they are, uh, they're pretty arrogant right now. Uh, I, I, but again, far left pro progressives by themselves couldn't win a seat on the local garbage commission without attracting independent voters to their side. And so Biden realizes this, and that's why I think he's at a point where he's going to negotiate with Republicans. Now, this is the point where Republicans just cave normally. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, but I don't like to say that about the party that I belong to, but it's the truth. And that's why this has been so inspiring in South Carolina to see the, the South Carolina House refuse to allow themselves to be bullied by Democrats or talked into a corner. See, when you stick with your principle, when you've got core principles, and those core principles are something that, that guide and direct your life, then you can stay on track and get things done and not be distracted. So some kind of deal, because Biden realizes this, he's got to have independent voters, voters, some kind of deal is going to happen on the debt ceiling, and Republicans need to hold out to get as much as they can uh, in this deal. All right, let me, let me move on to something else here. Let me ask you a question. How old is your car? Um, the cost of new and used cars, have you paid attention to this? I mean, it, it's rising at a record pace and it's causing people to hold on to their cars longer than ever. Now, I, I know a little bit about this because uh, I got into a situation two weeks ago, I guess now. Um, I was on a rural highway here in South Carolina, and a big buck stepped in front of my truck. I didn't even have time to take my foot off the gas, let alone get it to the brake pedal. And I hit this thing so hard that it caused about $14,000 damage to my truck, it, it deployed every airbag, and it, you know, it, it was, um, if I hadn't had my seatbelt on and had the airbags in there, I probably would have had a close encounter with the dashboard, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. But because of that, I've had to go out and get another truck because the insurance company totaled it, and I didn't have replacement value. I was too cheap to put replacement value on my coverage. Let, let me encourage you, uh, get replacement value coverage. So that when if if you have a, a vehicle that's totaled, the bank gets paid off and you get the money you need to go out and try to find another vehicle. But that put me in the market, and I you know I bought this truck. I think it was 2021. Might have been 2020. Yeah, I think it was 2020. I I bought this truck right before the market for used cars went crazy. Used cars and trucks. I mean, right after I got it, the value of my Silverado, and it was a 2017, it really went up because of how much used cars all of a sudden cost because of inflation, supply chain issues, and of course the feds are raising the rates every time you turn around. You know, I paid um, somewhere around 3% in 2020 for my car loan when the or truck loan when the average at that point, at that time, was about 4%. So I got an under average, well, a full point under the average cost, I think it's 4.4% actually, of uh, for an interest rate, and I got a great deal on the value of the truck. 
but I go in the in the market now and used cars, the used cars are $10,000 to $14,000 more than they were in 2020. That's how much they've gone up in just three years, a little bit under three years. So what else you got to deal with? You're going to pay 8%, 9%, 7%, somewhere around in there. You're going to pay a lot higher percentage interest rate on your car loan if you have to get a loan. And so, I mean, it's getting pretty ridiculous just to be able to drive, to get from point A to point B. The data shows, the data reveals today that the average car on the road is 12, over 12 and a half years old. 12 and a half years old. That's and it's increasing over the last five years. The last two years has seen the most dramatic increase, 28%, and it's been gradually rising. People are holding on to their cars. Used to, you got a car or a truck and it hits 1,000 miles. Oh, I'm done here. Got, a, I mean, 100,000 miles. Oh, I got 100,000 miles. I'm done here. Nope. People are putting 200,000-plus miles on their vehicle just because of the cost. Uh, the highest average age for a car on the road is where it's where we are right now. We've set a record tw and, and I told you it's a little 12, 12 12.6 years. And that's according to S and P mobility that keeps tabs on things like this. Um, and the cost again, used cars or new cars, it doesn't matter. Uh, you've got just incredible cost. Part of that is climate change regulations that the Biden administration has put on the car industry. Uh, the overall cost of doing, doing business is like, like I said, supply chain issues are playing into this. A year ago, financing a new car was 4.4%. We talked about that. And I paid 3% back in 2020. Uh, the average monthly payment for a new car right now is $729 a month. That's average. Used car loans are at 11% interest, and the average monthly cost is $568 a month. Now, thankfully, my, my, new, my truck payment is under the average, but we live in South Carolina, where the cost of living is much more reasonable that you find, than you find in where red state, I mean, in many ways, um, I'm, I'm finding working with the legislature, if we were a true red state with the majorities that we have in the House and the Senate and with a, a Republican governor, it seems like we could get things done a little easier. But be that as it may, economically speaking, we're a red state um, and the cost of living is lower here. We should be thankful for that. If, you, if you've been looking for a new or a used car, uh, you know how expensive they are. The average price of a new car is around $48,000. That's the average cost. That means, and, and you can't get a truck, I mean, you can't get a new truck for that. If you're looking for anything like a quad cab or a crew cab, you know, quad cab gives you a limited back seat and a back door in a truck. Crew cab gives you a full back seat. It's much more room, um, but it's a shorter truck bed. So they're trade-offs. But you, if, if you're looking for a truck that can pull something, like I got a camper, weighs 7,800 pounds, and if we're going to go use it, I got to be able to pull it down the highway. And you can't get anything for $48,000 in a truck to pull a camper. Um, and this $48,000 average for a new car is a 24% increase from just three years ago. And don't think you're going to go to the used car lot and do any better. 
because used car costs have increased by 40% since 2020. The average cost of a used car back in 2020 was, is um, well, uh, it, the average cost today, excuse me, is $29,000. That's $10,000 higher than just three years ago. Um, and so your car payment has gone up. Everything is going up. Uh, Americans who bought a car last year are paying over, uh, or rather one in six Americans who bought a car last year are paying over $1,000 a month for a car payment. One in six. In 2010, it was one in 50 that had a car payment that was over $1,000. So at this rate, you know, the Biden administration wants a majority of the cars on the road to be gas or be electric uh, powered by 2030. But at the rate we're going, there's no way we're going to have majority gas cars, combustion engines on the road until at least 2050. So this idea that we're going to quickly transition over to an all electric market, it's, it's just pie in the sky stuff because Americans can't afford it. We don't have the power grid to support it. Um, and, as you go out, you're, you're going to find if, that Mer Americans are holding on to their gasoline-powered cars or whatever car they've got. Some of them may be hybrids. You know, the, a lot of the concern about moving to electric cars is what it's going to cost to replace the battery. Batteries are thousands of dollars to replace in an electric car. And we don't know for sure what the battery life is on an electric vehicle, but we know that batteries don't last forever. They can only take so many recharges. Batteries lose their efficiency when it's cold. When it's cold outside, you lose 40% of your travel capacity and power capacity in your electric vehicle. And until they can overcome these things, we're not going to get anywhere near majority vehicles being electric. All right, the IRS team, we've had an IRS team removed from the Biden investigation. I mean, an entire team. In fact, attorneys representing the IRS whistleblower that contacted Congress, letting them know their client wanted to make some statements regarding uh, decisions that he had witnessed in the Justice Department that looked pretty fishy. Uh, and that includes now the reassigning of an entire group who was investigating Hunter Biden to a different area. Folks, this is, this is rotten to the core stuff. I mean, I, I find no pleasure in talking about our federal government in this manner, but when you have the Justice Department step in and you've got a group of investigators that have been going through Hunter Biden's records, finding discrepancies, building a case, and all of a sudden the Justice Department says, uh, excuse me, but all you guys that are being effective over here, we're going to move you down the hall. We're, we're going to put you on investigating, um, you know, abuses in the dog collar market or some such ridiculous thing because you're actually being too effective in going after Hunter Biden. Uh, it, it, it's that they can get by with this is an absolute disgrace. And it really points out that the legacy media in this country can no longer be considered the watchdogs of our. They're they're not even the lap dogs. They're the attack dogs. They're the guard dogs. They're the they're the ones who are protecting progressives. And right now they're protecting President Biden. If they weren't, 
They would be front page stories in every legacy media publication and every legacy media television, cable program, mainstream program about the fact that these investigators all of a sudden have just been reassigned. They're getting close to something. Oh, we're just going to take you from here and put you over there because we're, we're going to give you something new to look at. This is, I mean, this is crazy. This is kind of like the Nixon administration, Nixon administration firing the special prosecutor, firing all these people. You remember the, what was it called, the Saturday Night Massacre or whatever, when, when Nixon went in and started firing people that were getting close to the truth? Well, the Biden administration is not going to fire people. It's going to move them around. They're just going to say, oh, no, 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 you don't look at this anymore. Go over here and look out this window because you, you're getting too close to the truth. Now, when it comes to the whistleblower, a lot of conservatives are getting frustrated that we're not hearing more of what this whistleblower has to say. But the reason is that there's a sea of requirements that whistleblowers have to navigate before they can give information to Congress. And some of this is not bad, okay, because innocent people's identity, their financial information has to be protected. You have to be sure that when a whistleblower starts pointing fingers that he's not pulling in innocent people into the net um, and that they get their information gets put out there in front of everybody. So the, this whistleblower that is wanting to talk to Congress about abuses in the IRS and cover-up in the IRS um, has fulfilled those requirements, and they're now ready to tell what they know to the congressional oversight committees. Um, it appears something happened to my recording ability here all of a sudden I just noticed I have no have no idea how, how much of my recording I lost this is the other thing when you're doing a, a, a show and you're doing it live and something happens on the board that you should be paying attention to um, it you you can't really you can't do anything because you're focusing on the content anyway wah wah um, back to back to the my, my topic here what what I'm talking about is you know Bud Light gets a trans a, a really high profile transgender to come out and to push their product and they go in the tank financially, and now these other corporations come out and say, well, we we don't care, we're going to push back too. We don't care about our shareholders. We don't care about what kind of profit the company makes. We'd rather be in line with a woke agenda than we would be in line of being profitable when it comes to our responsibility to the company and to its shareholders. One of the first companies to stick their necks out, again, was Target, and that was Love is Love shirts. That, that goes back to 2012. That's how long they've been really involved in this. Um, now, this the Target is inviting uh, uh, new outrage according to the Daily Signal, with a trans line of clothes and books. I mean, we're talking about colorful message like trans people will always exist, queer, 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 queer on some of their shirts, um, cure transphobia, not trans people, and ask me about my pronouns. I mean, they're putting the uh, Target's putting themselves right in the bullseye. Now, I, I have no idea what this is going to mean for Target. In a sane world, the same thing that happened to, to Bud Light is going to happen to Target. People are going to look at this and they're going to go, I'll find somewhere else to get my stuff. Now, I know that's hard to do when the, the goal here is to get every corporate entity 
on the transgender train so that there's no place for people who want to express themselves by staying away from those companies to go. I mean, we do have to buy clothes. We do have to, and it becomes harder. People have to work a little harder, and they're already working hard to try to make a living in the economy that the Biden administration's given us. It's, it's more pressure that they have to go out and work harder to find a place to shop that they're not giving money hand over fist to corporations that are absolutely opposed to their values and think they shouldn't even exist. Um, yeah, and, and Levi Strauss, that, that, this is the second corporation. Jennifer Say, who's a longtime Levi's executive, wrote a blockbuster book about the radical undercurrent at America's oldest jeans company called Levi's Unbutton, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. And she says behind the scenes um, that, that Levi Strauss is 100% in giving lots of money to the transgender and gender-neutral movement in America. Uh, they've got a, a gender-neutral clothing line that they put out at Levi Strauss. CEO uh, Chip Berg announced the idea this month dismiss, dismissing any fears about a Bud Light-type backlash against the 170-year-old company. Unisex clothing, he said, is the wave of the future and is supposedly uh, going to lead to a trans-accepting society. So the clothes we wear, according to him, according to Burke, is, is going to be the defining moment that causes us to accept transgender behavior and the mutilation of minors when it comes to trans surgery for minors. Um, Axios, uh, or Berg talked to Axios. He said, we're building it out slowly. It started with a small collection of gender neutral or gender fluid lines, and there's definitely consumer appetite for that, uh, and we're all in for that. Third company is Starbucks. If you get a company, if you get a cup of coffee from Starbucks, you just need to remember that they've been financing the transgender movement and transgender surgeries for our sons and daughters for years. Uh, after a divisive, this is, again, according to the Daily Signal, uh, after a divisive pronoun campaign in 2019 called hashtag What's Your Name, the mega retailer one-upped America's other woke CEOs last year by offering to ship employees' children out of state to change their sex. So Starbucks is literally telling its employees, if you've got children and you want to mutilate them, we're going to help you. We're going to, if you're in a, in a backward, you know, uh, bohemian, some kind of uh, a bunch of, of, of conservative right-wing do-gooders, and they're actually protecting children in their state from mutilation, we're going to get you to a place where you can have them, you can get the sex change operation as a minor. Uh, Starbucks is going to pay the bill on that. Uh, they have, Starbucks spends a lot of money. They have a lot of philanthropic partners that include advocates for child sex changes, uh, and, and they're trying to spread that now around the world. On May 9th, Starbucks India ignited a global firestorm after releasing an ad openly celebrating gender reassignment surgery. In the commercial, which has more than a million views, a mom and dad met with their son, who now identifies as a girl, at the coffee shop. They all listen as the barista calls out for, uh, for a rip, uh, Arpita, A-R-P-I-T-A. I guess that's Arpita. Uh, that, that's the son's new name, 
meant to be assigned to his parents who placed the order to accept his new female identity. For me, you're still my kid, the father says. Only a letter has been added to your name, he said, reaching out uh, for his son's hand. Underneath, the Indian caption reads, your name defines who you are, whether it's Arpit or Arpita. At Starbucks, we love and accept you for who you are because being yourself means everything to us. So this is, and, and then the fourth company that's gone completely woke, and by the way, completely insane, is Sports Illustrated. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say, guys, if you go out, we know why you get the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. I mean, it's not for sports scores. It's for the pictures of the swimsuit models. The person on the cover, the 2023 edition, um, if you would like to see an actual woman, if that's the, what you look at the swimsuit issue for, you're not going to see it if you pick up an edition of the new swimsuit uh, Sports Illustrated. You're going to see a man who has had transition surgery years ago, but is still biologically a male. Now, how can I say that if they've had the transition surgery? Well, because if you go in and start counting chromosomes, this is still a guy, no matter how they may look in a bathing suit. This is taking the place of women. This has been a prominent place. Now, I'm, I'm not a big fan um, of, you know, exploiting women through putting them on the cover of the swimsuit magazine for Sports Illustrated, but I'm telling you, for the, for the women who don't mind that, if they make the decision that that's what they want, that's a big career pusher for them to make the swimsuit edition. I mean, it can explode their modeling contracts. It can cause them to be able to get opportunities in Hollywood, TV shows, movies. But not when you decide that you can put a man in the place of a woman and that nobody's going to care. Um Let's see, who is Petros? I'm trying to figure out here. I was so excited when I got the call to be in Sports Illustrated. Petros, oh, Petros is the person who's on the cover. He's a German-born singer. It's very iconic, and a lot of very iconic people have done it before. So it was a big dream come true for me. Ask about the pushback he might get. 30-year-old Petros replied, it's definitely a scary time to be transgender in America. You know what's uh, a scary time in America? If you're a minor child, and you might be forced into transgender surgery, that would be scary. It's a scary time in America for unborn children in blue states that can be killed right up to, pre to, the, to almost to delivery during a pregnancy. It's a scary time in America for these children who are forced into transgender surgery. Not, not the, it's scary to be transgender? Are you kidding me? They're the flavor of the month. When it comes to culture, the way the culture is looking at this right now, uh, there's also much more representation than there's ever been, he went on to say, and there's so many things that are on the bright side of this. Yeah. All right, that's all the time that we've got for today. Uh, thanks for joining me. I'm sorry about some of the technical difficulties we've had today. i got to figure out why my uh, roadcaster decided to stop recording at some point in the middle of all this and also figure out why the show wasn't live on Facebook today. But we'll get our team of crack technicians yeah, uh, on the problem and see if we can figure that out between now and tomorrow. Tomorrow, you don't want to miss the show live. And you, you're going to want to go back and listen to the podcast because my guest tomorrow, I'm going to have somebody on 
um, statewide from the pro-life community to talk about what the House has done and what the Senate's likely to do. Don't know who that's going to be yet, but we're going to have an interview tomorrow. And um, and also, we're going to have Congressman Jeff Duncan from 8 to 8.15. He's going to be talking about energy policy. He's going to be talking about foreign policy. We're, we're going to be talking about a lot of things that uh, Congressman Duncan is involved in on the national level. You're not going to want to miss that. He's always, when I was doing the radio show, he was always one of our most popular guests with the audience. So 8 to 8.15 in the morning, at least be sure to tune in to hear the live interview with Congressman Duncan. I'm, I'm always interested in what he's involved in in Washington because it's always things that are in the country's best interest. All right, that's all the time we got. Like we said, uh, check out the podcast later today. We'll, we'll uh, string something together uh, to make it work. I've got a new column that's been posted at drtonybeam.com. You can read my blog there. I'm trying to have some new stuff over the weekend as well. And in between, have a great day. I'll see you in the morning. It'll be backpatting day of Friday to be celebrated together on Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Bain.